Today's selection from Calvert Library's digital collection, Amberlow, by Lara Elena Donnelly. Part 1. Chapter 1. At the beginning of the work week, most of Amberlow's salary folk crawled reluctantly from their bed, or someone else's, and let the trolleys tow them, hung over and half asleep, to the office. Amberlow City, eponymous capital of the larger state, was not home to many early risers. In a second-story flat on the fashionable part of Baldwin Street, close enough to the river that the scent of money still perfumed the air, and close enough to the wharves for good street food and radical conversation, Cyril de Paul pulled himself from beneath a heavy duvet of moire silk. The smell of coffee was strong outside his nest of blankets. An early spring storm freckled the bedroom windows with rain. Though this was not his flat, Cyril slipped from bed and went directly to the washroom without hesitation. He ran a wet comb through his hair, brushed his teeth with cloying, violet-flavored toothpaste, and borrowed the dressing gown hanging on the bath rail. Despite Aristide's penchant for overwarming his rooms, the last of winter lingered on the tile floor. Cyril left the cold mosaic of the washroom behind and gratefully took to the plush carpet running the length of the hallway. Its tasseled end debouched onto the parlor, where he met the maid balancing an empty tray. "'He's at the little table, Mr. DePaul,' she said, without so much as a blush. "'Thank you, Elsa.' She had charming dimples when she smiled. At the far end of the parlor, where it joined with the dining room, the corridor belled outward into a breakfast nook, bracketed by windows. An elegant, ochre-skinned man sat at his ease in one of the gilded chairs— Reading spectacles rested halfway down his dramatic nose, narrow at the top, wide at the base, deeply curved, as if a sculptor had put her thumb between his eyes and pulled firmly down. His thin lips were arranged in a pout practiced so often in the mirror it had become habitual. He held the society pages of the Amberlow Clarion against one knee. The rest of the paper, all the crosswords done and still damp from the storm, was scattered among a silver coffee surface set out for two, and dainty plates of almond pastry. As Cyril sat down at the unattended coffee cup, Aristide snapped his paper and said without looking up, "'Finally, I was beginning to wonder if you did it in your sleep. "'And miss the pleasure of your company at breakfast? "'Never.' Cyril poured for himself, luxuriating in Aristide's affected stutter and the soundless slip of coffee against the shining glaze of his cup." Are you finished with the front page? Ages ago. Cyril reached for the paper and grimaced when the wet ink left streaks on his palm. Been up long? He asked the question casually, but over splotchy headlines he catalogued Aristide's appearance with strict attention. Satin pajamas under a quilted dressing gown, the same set he'd almost worn to bed. His tumble of dark curls had been swept casually over one shoulder, but they still showed traces of damp. A flush lingered across his cheeks. He'd left the flat already this morning, but changed back out of his clothes. Something illicit, then, and Cyril was not supposed to notice. Obediently, he ignored it, just as Aristide ignored his scrutiny and his question. "'Eat,' Aristide pushed one of the pastries across the table. "'Or you'll be late to work. I shiver to imagine Culpepper in a fury. She's frightful enough as it is.' "'Arry.' I know, I know, I'm not supposed to know. He reached two bony fingers into the breast pocket of his dressing gown and removed a slip of paper folded in half. 
and neither should she, right? Without looking at Cyril, he handed over the check. Discretion, as they say, is priceless. Cyril made the payoff disappear up his sleeve. You don't have to remind me. The money was a symbolic gesture, allowing for plausible deniability. But I'm glad when you do. Ignoring the pastry, he drained his coffee cup and stood. Clothes? Ilsa pressed them, their hanging in the wardrobe. Cyril dipped down to kiss Aristide on the top of his head. His hair smelled of rain, salt, and smoke. Somewhere on the wharves, then. Probably the southern end, near the spits. Bad part of town. Smugglers docked there in the wee hours. Aristide grabbed a fistful of Cyril's fox fur lapel and pulled, forcing him to bend deeper until they were face to face. Cyril, he purred, and there was menace behind it. You haven't got the time. Ah, said Cyril, but don't you wish I did? He kissed Aristide again on his pursed, displeased mouth. After half a moment's resistance, Ari gave in and smiled. The rain was done by the time the Baldwin Street trolley stopped at Talbot Row. Cyril disembarked and joined a bedraggled wave of late commuters, all headed for the same transfer. Wedged at the front end of the trolley car, between the driver's partition and a dozing woman in a loud plaid suit, Cyril took the clarion out from under his arm. He'd bought his own copy at the Hinesgate trolley stop and propped it against his leg. The headliner was a story about a train station bombing in Tochadrav, a disputed settlement on the border of Teish. Of the four nation-states in Geta's loose federation, Teish was the most fractious. The only state to maintain a standing army, it had been locked in a bitter territorial conflict with the neighboring Republic of Tsitsa for generations. Luckily for the rest of the country, federal funds and energy only went to mutually beneficial projects, infrastructure, and foreign policy, and, particularly relevant to Cyril, national security. So the decades-long skirmishing hadn't drained the national treasury, just nearly bankrupted an economically precarious Teche. By and large, Amberlinians ignored their eastern sibling, except as a subject of satire and an occasional creeping nervousness vis-à-vis Teichean firepower. Though it wasn't strictly good form, Amberlo's covert operatives kept a close eye on Teche. The best of navies was no good against a landlocked, militarized state, and they weren't the most cordial of neighbors. Tucked neatly under the gruesome account of the bombing was a smaller headline on the upcoming Western election. Parliamentary elections were all offset by two years, and this year it was Neusglund's turn. In the accompanying picture, outgoing primary representative Annika Steitler stood next to a young woman with marshaled hair and deep-set eyes. The caption read, Steitler endorses secondary Kit Red Lions, South Gestrocht. Below that, another picture of a pale, flat-faced man in rimless spectacles, looking down from a podium swagged with bunting. Caleb Ackerby stands for the one-state party in Neuskland. Poor Stateler. She'd been good to her constituents, and they would have had her for another eight years if she'd let the state assembly dissolve Neuskland's term limits. Cyril hadn't been at the luncheon where Director Culpepper and Amberlo's private parliamentary representative, Josiah Habreeds, went to work on her, but Culpepper had come back in a foul humor, filled with apocalyptic premonitions. Statler was a staunch ally against encroaching Ospie influence in Parliament. As long as regionalist Amberlo and Neuskland stood against unionist Farborough and Teche, things stayed at a deadlock. If Atcherby took the primary seat, well, he'd always been the brains behind the Ospie cause. 
He'd had to wait through two election cycles, unable to run for office outside his birth state. Now it was his turn, and he'd have a long to-do list. He'd probably calm things down in the East and feed the starving orphans in Farborough, but at a crippling cost to Geta as a whole. Atterby's aim was unification, the loose federation into one tightly controlled entity, the manifold diversity of Geta's people into one homogenous culture. Sighing, Cyril opened the paper to the center and folded it back on itself, hiding Atterby's severe expression under layers of cheap newsprint. He was deep in a conservative opinion piece in favor of further increasing domestic border tariffs, the same tariffs Aristide had been neatly avoiding in the small hours of the morning, when the trolley cables caught and the gripman bawled out, Station way! Cyril disembarked to walk what was left of his commute. The gutters ran fast. Bicyclists and motor cars splashed oily water across the footpath as they passed. Behind the marble edifice of the capital, masts and smokestacks striped the sky above the harbor. Seabirds wheeled and shrieked, peppering the green copper dome of the government with their droppings. Amberlow's branch of the Federal Office of Central Intelligence Services hid on the top three floors of an unassuming office building just across Station Way from the Capitol's sloping gardens. Like everything in the FOCIS, the office had its own facetious nickname, the Foxhole. "'Morning, Mr. DePaul,' said Foyles from behind his racing form. Foyles had presided over the lobby as long as Cyril had been working in the Foxhole, and probably twice again as long as that. Deep wrinkles creased his face, and the tight spirals of his hair stood out in striking white against his slate-dark skin. Cyril half-waved at him and stepped into the lift, standing back while the attendant shut the grate. He didn't need to tell her his floor. The lift paused once at three, where clerks and auditors held court amidst the clamor of ringing lacquer telephones, heads bent over pencils and adding machines. Floors four and five were sleight of hand, espionage to ensure the security of the federated states of Geta. But three was where the true sorcery happened. The bursar's team made eye-popping embezzlements into minor calculating errors. Bribes and payoffs disappeared into endless columns of numbers and names. Agents were paid in secretive exchanges, the intricacies of which could escape even authorizing division heads. The accountants were, to a person, discreet, clean-cut, and scrupulously polite. They terrified the rest of Central. The attendant scissored the lift grate open and stepped back for a new passenger. A young man in a shabby suit got on, ducking his head of bright copper hair. He smiled at Cyril without making eye contact. Against his chest, he held a sheaf of papers under a fat leather date book, arms crossed tightly over it all like a shield. Cyril ticked through his mental files, checking names against faces, stories against facts. Low-level auditor, been in the office two years, uncommonly straight for an Amberlinian, he'd never tried his hand at extortion. Painfully fair, with a winning tendency to blush when embarrassed. Embarrassed very easily. What was his name again? Lords, that was it. Finn Lords. They'd only spoken once or twice. Finn had visited Cyril just out of hospital to express central sympathies and deliver, by hand, a comfortable bonus and a promise of promotion, Culpepper's blood money. They ran into each other sometimes in the halls, now that Cyril was settled behind a desk. And anyway, Cyril wouldn't be working on the fifth floor if he didn't have a mind for details. If you enjoyed this chapter and are hungry for more, this title is available as an audiobook through Hoopla. 
If you're enjoying Book Bites, please don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there are books or genres you'd like to hear, email us at calvertlibrarybookbites at gmail.com. Visit calvertlibrary.info for more information and stay tuned for more Book Bites.